the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Jeet Heer, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. Jeet, thanks for being on the program. Good to be here. Jeet, I'm guessing that there's not a lot of things that you and I would agree on, but one thing we do agree on is the point that you made in a recent piece at The Nation. The headline is, Republicans have the Biden presidency caught in a unity trap. And and I, I would say the fundamental point that you make here is that this whole idea of unity, you know, as the goal of politics is largely bogus. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, to qualify a little bit, like I think it can be uh, successful as sort of political rhetoric. Like I think there are a lot of voters out there that like to hear about unity. Uh, But on a fundamental level, like the whole point of politics is dispute, right? Like it's like you have a community, a polity, and people have different views of where it should go and what should be done. And they have to, you know, like, uh, fight it out. They have to, like, uh, argue it out and, uh, have elections and, and try to persuade each other. But, but, but it is not, politics by definition is not about unity unless you're talking about a totalitarian state. Yeah, politics is a theater of conflict. And if people didn't disagree about something, it wouldn't be a political issue. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, 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 and conflict, I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, normal people. I, mean, I think about a, a cousin of mine who's an accountant, and she doesn't like politics. She says because they're always fighting. But I mean, that's like, and uh, but I mean, that's also understandable. But that is what politics is. Like it is where people uh, kind of fight it out. So in that sense, unity rhetoric um, is kind of designed to appeal to people like my cousin. But it is. Um, uh, I think we have to just take it as rhetoric. Like I do think there's a reason why there's you know two parties in America and many other countries have like many parties, right? Because people disagree. Well, and if you look at history, the political history of this country or any other, things that are hot issues at one time uh, are not issues at all 50 years later. Uh, they're, no, they're not matters that's right, about yeah. which they're issues because people are disagreeing about them and consider them to mm-hmm. be important. 50 years later, yeah. the consensus has been reached. There's no real disagreement. It's no longer a, a political issue. And people have moved on to resolving other matters about which people now do disagree. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I want to also say something further, which I think people don't understand or appreciate. But this whole emphasis on bipartisanship and unity actually creates an incentive for uh, polarization, a reaction of polarization. And one sees this like in the sort of early republic where like um, uh, President Monroe created this era of good feelings where he brought in people from all over the spectrum and across the country for unity. But that like a lot of people saw that as like creating um, an elite that doesn't care about the common people. And that led to Andrew Jackson. 
and the sort of, you know, populism that he embodied. Uh, and one saw it again in the sort of 1950s, where Eisenhower had this, you know, very deliberate middle-of-the-road policy. And that created a reaction on both the left and the right, where you had kind of civil rights people saying, well, that's, you're not going far enough for us. And you also had people on the right, uh, like the Early National Review and the John Birch Society in Goldwater, who said, well, no, this is, um, Eisenhower uh, has betrayed the Republicans. He's not doing with Social Security. He's not rolling back communism. So, so again, I, I sort of see, you know, unity talk almost by its nature tends to provoke people um, uh, to push against it and, and encourages polarization. Now, you make a point in your piece uh, that maybe is a little bit different from a point I would make, but let's talk about it. Uh, one of the things you argue is that this talk about unity, bringing the country together, et cetera, by Joe Biden and members of his administration is kind of playing into the hands of Republicans and is really empowering them in a way that Biden shouldn't intend. Yeah, no, I, I do think that that's kind of like a danger where, like, you know, um, if he uh, if he talks about unity so much, then Republicans can kind of, you know, obstruct stuff and say, well, we don't agree with it. So it's anti-unity. So anything. Um, and we do see that. I mean, I do think that we've seen Republicans use the unity language against Biden. Uh, but, but having said that, I mean, like Biden himself has also tried to redefine unity as not unity with uh, bipartisanship of Republicans and Democrats, but unity of what polls well. So he can say, well, you know, 80 percent of the population wants a stimulus check. So like that's unity. So so that we're, we're seeing kind of very interesting battle of defining what is unity. And I think the Republicans are really emphasizing the old sort of bipartisan idea that say, well, if you can't get both parties on board, it's um, uh, you're dividing the country. And I think Biden, you know, having been caught in that unity trap is trying to work around it. We're talking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine. Jeet, let's broaden the conversation just a little bit. One of the things that we've all heard just ad nauseum, you know, in recent years is is people talking and com usually complaining about the fact that we are so polarized. Uh, mm. You know, America's gotten so polarized, you know, it's it's extreme or it's 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 too partisan or it's too aggressive, you know, and I think there's some truth to that. Um but but how does that fit into the general view that you and I both share, which is, you know, that's what politics is for, is to resolve the very matters about which, uh, you know, pe pe people don't agree? Yeah, I, I think some of the polarization stuff is actually a, a genuine concern about the fact that the American political system doesn't map on very well. Uh, with these types of these periods of uh, increased disagreement, uh, where it's on, on parties, and I think in the olden days you had sort of liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, and you could create these sort of cross patch alliances. But once you have very polarized political parties, and you have something like the Senate, uh, which um, uh, has a lot of veto points, and has and the American political system as a whole has a lot of veto points, what you kind of get is gridlock, and I think that. That is a kind of concern we don't, they, um, we're, uh, which we've seen over, you know, by, um, administrations of both parties for a long time. I mean, the only place that presidents can really get stuff done is foreign policy, which is why, you know, like Bush was able to invade, like, Iraq. But you, in, in domestic policy, I think America has had gridlock for, you know, pretty much this, um, you know, the 21st century. Uh, and that, that's a problem. I think that's something that one has to think about and work around. But um, 
but I mean, again, well, the issue is... If I could just interrupt for a second, Gene, I, I agree with you there. And I, it seems to me that our whole, our constitutional system is set up so that it's hard to get things done unless there's consensus. Because as you say, mm-hmm. there's, a lot of ve- there's a lot of veto points. There's a lot of reasons why something doesn't happen. And for things mm-hmm. to happen, there's got to be pretty good consensus under our system. And so I think part of what we're seeing here is, is where you haven't got that consensus, people get increasingly frustrated because they don't see movement in either direction. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that is a genuine issue. And where we might disagree is, I, I, I mean, my sticky on this is that I think it's actually kind of, you might want to get rid of some of these veto points um, uh, and, you know, like just have a, uh, a more uh, direct policy so that, like, when Republicans are in charge, they can get their policies. When Democrats are, they can, and, and the voters can decide. But, uh, I mean, that, that's a very hard thing to do. I mean, we see with, you know, the filibuster. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I mean, like, I do think that this issue of gridlock I think that's a great point. Uh, we're up against a hard break. We have to leave it there. We've been talking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine. Jeet, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it is a really good to talk. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.